podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host. Today, we welcome Lori Banoff-Kaufman. As someone who, to quote Lori, has had about six careers, end of quote, culminating as a published author with her first young adult historical fiction novel coming out in February 2021, and you can pre-order now and we'll talk about that, Lori will talk about her serial relaunching, including launching and running a tech strategy consulting firm, a corporate relaunch with Sesame Street, an exciting entrepreneurial venture involving a lice removal device, and now her book contract with Random House. There were lots of starts and stops along the way, and Lori will talk about how her career path ebbed and flowed with each successive relaunch. We will also discuss exactly how she got her idea for her upcoming book, Rebel Daughter, how she got her book contract, and what's next as she approaches her book publication date. Lori is talking to us from Tel Aviv, Israel, where she has lived for over 30 years. She's married and has four adult children. Lori, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Lori, we're calling you the serial relauncher, and you yourself has described yourself as someone who has had about six careers. Can you please take us through your career progression over the years? Sure. So after business school uh, in 1985, I moved to Israel, and we had a new baby, so my options were pretty limited. Um, I got my first job as an economist in Israel Chemicals, which was a chemical company. I was there for two years. And when I was on maternity leave uh, with my um, third child, no, sorry, that was, yes, third child was then. Um, I, <laughs> I love right, I forgot. Right? <laughs> I forgot that it was with Danya. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I started doing uh, consulting projects. Um, I wrote a business plan for a startup company, and then more people were asking and uh, for, for separate projects, and that actually turned into a consulting firm. I decided not to go back to Israel Chemicals and instead to start my own consulting company and turn the, this project-based work into something a little more official. Um, we provided strategy and marketing advice to high-tech companies. Our specialty was advising military companies on commercializing their technology for the civilian market. And uh, that was a very exciting time. And I had a, a, a partner, a woman partner, and we eventually grew to over 20 consultants. And one day, <laughs> as I was at my desk looking out of my office, and my office window looked out at a community center pool, and I saw all the mothers and their kids sitting outside while I was stuck inside, and I thought, something's not right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm working so hard to pay the rent and to pay everybody's salaries, and I was missing a lot of the, uh, the individual um, client contact that I had on the earlier projects and doing more managing. And I decided to leave. The, the company went on. I left and for a while just took individual projects, one of which was for Sesame Street. 
um, that was starting to broadcast. Well, they had been broadcasting for a while, but they wanted to increase their footprint in Israel. It started as a consulting project and it sort of turned into a job. And I became the director of Israel operations. Um, wow. And was that, that was really fun. That was it. It had a lot more fun factor than working with military companies, for sure. <laughs> the, 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 per, the primary purpose of my job was to help fundraise the operations here. So mm. that was a little bit, I wasn't really hanging out with Big Bird and you know the, the, <laughs> the, the puppets, but it was fun to get the swag and my daughter <laughs> loved it. And uh, there were definitely some fun perks. Uh, but at the end of the day, it uh, it was a fundraising project. So that was a lot less. It was it was a lot less fun than it than it seemed. But the people were wonderful, and it was a completely different world for me. So that was very exciting. And then when that kind of uh, you know ran its course, because you know there was a limit to how much. Um, I could do being on the business side and not on the creative side. I joined, I started a, a entrepreneurial venture that was based on technology that I had been exposed to in my uh, consulting firm. It was based, uh, the technology was based on military optics, actually for finding defects in bullets. And since I had young kids at home and was dealing with the lice problem that all mothers know oh, yeah. about. <laughs> um, I wondered why light couldn't find and kill lice. And it turns out that it could. So that turned into an entrepreneurial venture to develop a device that would kill lice with light. Um, and that was a really fun, exciting project, working with scientists and a lot of different partners. But at a certain point with that venture, um, I realized I either had to um, sort of change my lifestyle constraints. In other words, I had to work a lot more and, and travel and fundraise and to take it to another level. Um, and I had to decide also about my writing career because while I had started um, this lice business, I also began working on this historical novel. And at some point I just had to choose. and I. I chose to to become a, a writer. And then 10 years later, <laughs> I have a book. So I didn't think at all that it was going to take so long. Wait, Lori, I just want to jump in here and, and get a little sense about the time frame. So I know you're saying like the book, it took 10 years, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But for example, um, between the uh, Sesame Street sort of winding up and the Lice entrepreneurial venture really, um, you, you know, taking shape. Was there a time there, and, and actually, and the writing piece, it sounds like you were always kind of doing something. Like did one like flow right into the other or were there sort of breaks or how did that work? Right. I always was doing something or planning to do something. I, uh, and Looking back on it, I think I shouldn't have been so um, worried about having this professional identity. I, I've never been comfortable telling people I'm I'm at home with my kids, and I mm -hmm. I look back on that and I wish that I had been willing 
to own that because I think I put a lot of unnecessary pressure on myself to justify my, justify myself as a career woman, a serious professional. And um, now I don't really know why I, that was so important. I think we've all felt um, when you're say at a, at a party, a cocktail party situation, and someone says, well, what are you doing? And, you know, if you say I'm at home with my kids, you see the person's eyes glaze over. They're starting to look around for someone else more, more interesting to talk to. And I, yeah. I, I think I was in there. Yes. <laughs> and I think I did not have the confidence or the I don't know what, but I, I think I felt very uncomfortable and I always felt a need to have an answer, have something that I could talk about that I was doing other than just being at home. Um, and that's not the reason that I started writing, but it, it did give me something to say, you know, that would lead to, to a more interesting to talk other than, you know, where are your kids in school? So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I always did have you know something cooking on the side, but again, I don't. Looking back, I don't know if it was um, because I really always needed something, or because you know that's just the timing <laughs> how it all worked out. Yeah, and um, and it's always interesting to look at the these career paths or your own career path in retrospect, and and sort of like this commentary that you have. Essentially, I had to have an elevator pitch. You, you know, mm -hmm. at, about um, on my professional life. And that was something that um, that had a priority. And now you're looking back on it and thinking, hmm, I wonder why um, that was so important and why I had to have that um, all the time. But I can totally relate to it myself. Um, and I was completely in those situations where during my career break, because I did have an extended 11 year period where I was not doing something. And I was in plenty of social situations where um, I found that people weren't that interested in talking to me. And then I had the complete opposite experience when I went back to work. Uh, at, I went back to Bain Capital in 2001. And as soon as that happened, it was like a, a light switch. All of a sudden, I'd walk into the same social events. And people who really didn't want to give me the time of day were sort of all over me in terms of what's going on and talking to me about the bond market. And I just could not even believe it. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I've been in the middle of that. Um, Lori, what was your, uh, like, you've done so many different kinds of things. Did you, um, were there some things when, when you're doing like the entrepreneurial venture or you're a part of a company, the strategy consulting, the writing, is there one that's jumped out of you that was your favorite or was there something that you kind of picked up and learned from each one that you brought to another one or are they are they discrete experiences or are they somehow did they get somehow linked in, in one way or another? That's a good question. I look back on all the things I've done and I don't think that they tell a very uh, they don't tell a straight story. It's not a linear career where I can say, you know, I did this and then my next position had greater responsibility and uh, a bigger title. And, and this led to this and led to this. I kind of look at it as a lot of different puzzle pieces that are just scattered on the floor. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can I can put it together to tell a story, but I don't think that my career fits together in a way that we all want our career to fit together. It just, it's mm -hmm. like, what? You did what? And, and you did <laughs> Sesame Street and you worked with 
bullet manufacturers and, you know, it just doesn't, you know, and lice and now you're writing and like, like, what are you good at? What, what did you want to be when you grow up? And, and, mm-hmm. you know, so I got something out of each one of my, um, each one of my jobs and my career. Um, it's hard to define it all you know, as a career in the typical way, when you think of a career as being one thing, if you look at a career as an outside label, like I was in finance or I was a banker, Mm -hmm. but if I look at my career internally and I say, well, I've been able to do interesting, challenging things, um, with the financial reward, um, and grew professionally, you know, some mm-hmm. jobs were more, I had to stretch myself more creatively. Uh, some jobs were, or some positions I had to stretch myself as a manager. Other ones I had to speak and speak in Hebrew, which is not my native language and, and make presentations. And so I do feel like for me, if I look at it, um, if I'm telling my own story to myself, I do see that there was a progression. I was trying different things. And yeah, a lot of it was a lot of the things I fell into or I I, I turned to because of constraints at home or just the way things unfold in life. As we all know, as we get older, you can plan mm-hmm. as much as you want. But at the end of the day, you're going to get this job because you happen to say speak to one person here who spoke to one person there. And it as much as you plan and plan, a lot of things just happen (laughs) career wise. And I think a lot of my career just happened, but I was able to learn from most of the experiences and it does tell a coherent story to myself, (laughs) but I think to the outside world, it's, it's much harder to see it. Um, And one of the things that I just would like to say, I don't know if this is the right time, but a lot of it involved building confidence and mm-hmm. I think that I've needed the most confidence to do uh, my last, <laughs> to become a, to say I'm a writer. I, because it's something I always wanted to write. And I didn't do it because I didn't know if I'd be good at it. And it's not something I could, um, I could own the same way I could say I'm a technology consultant. Or, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think a lot of it had to do with confidence. Now, if I look at all of my, different positions, I did grow in confidence um, with each position. Mm, That is so interesting. You know, your comments about uh, not having a plan, you you know, I I distinctly remember Sheryl Sandberg talking about this uh, in Lean In, where she said, you know, I was always a planner, I had a five-year plan. And when she moved out to the West Coast, it was the first time I think she didn't have a five-year plan. And she said, if I had stuck to it, I never would have taken my first job at Google, because it was not in the plan. Mm-hmm. And I had to allow myself not to have a plan in order to be open to those kinds of possibilities. And it sounds like you did that in the extreme. And, and it, it led to a multi-dimensional, really, really interesting career journey, even though, as you're saying, it it sort of doesn't all fall under a category of a particular kind of work. The pieces of it made sense for you to be doing at whatever time you did them. Yeah. And I think also that it's very hard to plan when you have children. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, you don't know if, you know, you're going to have to 
deal with issues that come up when you have children. I have four children and we, and my husband had some health challenges that, that took up a lot of my time. And, you know, if you have a, a family life, you're going to have things that come up. And there are some times where you are going to need greater flexibility in, in your job and you won't be able to travel or you, you know, or you'll have to spend time with aging parents. I mean, there's so many things that come up that, I, I think it's. I think you can have a, a very macro, big picture plan, but um, you can't beat yourself up when life doesn't follow it. That's for sure. Yeah, and actually, that leads into the next question I wanted to ask you about. What did things look like on the personal side when you're going through all of this transition and you had these different opportunities and you did so many different kinds of things? Did you feel, on some level, that whatever came next in your progression somehow coincided with what was right for your life stage at that moment in terms of how old your kids were or some other factor. Uh, well, and definitely, definitely. I would never have taken the Sesame Street job, for example, if I didn't have little kids. I think I just wanted to impress them. You know, I think that was totally, you know. I after, hope they were impressed. They were. They were. That was the one job they were very impressed with. And I, and I know that if, um, you know, my kids were older, I probably wouldn't have thought, oh, I have to take this job because then I can take them to the set and I can, you know. Right. So that was, uh, that was kind of fun. But I think that it does have to, all the pieces of your life have to fit together. And I don't know many women where your career and your job is the only piece. Yeah. And, and men too. And, you know, in our relauncher community, we have women and men and people sure. who take career breaks for a whole range of reasons. Some childcare, some elder care, sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. reasons that have nothing to do with caregiving. So, mm -hmm. um, I think what you're saying is is really relevant for people in this whole range of situations. True, true. And I think it's important to be open to possibilities, to things you never would think that it would be, you know, what you were trained to do, what you learned, what you studied, but opportunities present themselves and sometimes I think the flexibility is a good is a good thing and it can lead to some unexpected wonderful opportunities. As we we start to talk, I want to talk more about Rebel Daughter and your and your book contract. But your your comment about this was a ten year journey and the writing was kind of a side gig is really reflects reality because there are uh, people who have writing careers and 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 we're we're actually doing a series of interviews with with people who have writing careers. Sometimes they say it it has to start out as a side gig and you have a day job and you're doing something else mm -hmm, uh, because. Mm -hmm. You don't just start out on day one drawing income from from a writing career. So when did you write like the first thing that you wrote? Were you writing articles before? Did you have this idea for this book right from the get go? And what was the progression there? Well, I've always wanted to write and I had uh, co-authored some how to books with my husband more as a um, you know, a hobby, uh, a fun project that we had done many, many years before. So I was a little bit familiar with writing, but I never um, thought that it would turn into um, something that I would spend so much time on. And and frankly, I, I started writing only when I turned 50. So I knew that this was not going to be something that was going to, um, it was only something I could do when I had the financial security to do it. I think mm -hmm. you, it's, it's a luxury to be able to, to 
obviously take 10 years to write a novel, even though I was working at the same time for most of that. But, um, you know, very few people can make a living as uh, certainly as fiction writers. Most most fiction, even very, very successful fiction writers have to teach. Um, So um, it's just, you know, a very tough industry. on the other hand, I think it is something that can be combined with other with other real life jobs. Um, mm-hmm. So I, there were days when I would write two words and erase one, but I still felt like even if I could sit down for ten minutes a day, I'm making progress. I'm I'm, I'm walking towards that goal, and eventually, eventually, I've got to get there. So between the laundry and the carpools and work. I would just try to squeeze in some writing time. And and that's how it is. It's it's the hardest thing about writing for me was carving out the time um, and just sticking with it, you know, for for that long. And was that sometimes like, you know, at midnight when everyone was in bed or did you get up at five o'clock in the morning or, or like and did you say to yourself, I'm going to devote X number of hours a day in order to keep moving forward? Or was it in bursts sometimes, you know, at a random time, all of a sudden you sit down and write a significant piece? Like, how did that process work? Right. I don't, I'm not one of these super disciplined wake up at 5 a.m., you know, <laughs> wake up at 5 a.m. and write after I've gone for a five mile jog. No, that was definitely not me. It was more stolen moments. Um, mm-hmm. here and there, whenever I could. And there are plenty of weeks where I didn't touch it. And um, But I just kept going. And I think if you just keep going, eventually, <laughs> you know, you're going to get somewhere. And there are some mm-hmm. people that sprint to the finish line and some people arrive limping and bloodied and bandaged. And that was me. But it doesn't <laughs> matter because you eventually get there. Can you just give us a synopsis about what Rebel Daughter is about and how you got fascinated with the story? Okay, Rebel Daughter is a historical novel set in the first century about a young aristocratic woman who is taken captive after the fall of Jerusalem. There was uh, the Jews rebelled against Rome and were defeated, and the survivors were were taken as slaves to Rome. And the woman was uh, bought and her master fell in love with her and eventually freed her. And this is a true story. And when I heard the story, a friend of mine who is a, a very well-known historian was told me this story. And I said, oh, my God, this is incredible. There, her, her gravestone was found in Naples. And hmm. the archaeologists and researchers were very excited by this discovery because it proved the Jewish presence in Rome in the first century. And it had a lot of archaeological significance. But I heard the story and I thought, wow, that that's a really great story. And almost as a joke, I said to my friend, well, you do the history and I'll do the love story. This is great. <laughs> and he said, since he's a professor, he's the chairman of the history and classics department at Tel Aviv University and was very involved in, in the book as well. He sent me books to read. And I started reading about this time period, a, a time period I had absolutely no interest in or knowledge. And all of a sudden, I was just hooked. Mm. So Rebel Daughter is about a strong, resilient heroine who shows unimaginable strength in the face of 
trauma, basically. And it explores the role of faith and family obligation. And it's, it's for readers of historical fiction. And it offers a very detailed and accurate de- depiction of the historical events of uh, the first century, which is a very interesting time period. At least I think it is. <laughs> okay. So you hear this story, you're talking to this historian, you get really interested um, in the period and specifically in what happened with this particular person or group of people. And then how did you like, do you remember the day when you wrote the first words? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I actually do remember that I uh, was just trying to imagine what it would be like to be taken away from the city where you were born and you had lived in your whole life. And, and my character, Esther, was born in, um, and lived in Jerusalem and taken off in chains to Rome. And what would that be like? And what, you know, if you want to take something with you. And I remember writing that paragraph, like what it would be like and, and looking around and picking up a, just a stone to take with her that she would have something from Jerusalem. So I, do, I didn't end up in the final book, but I do remember having this, you know, burst of, uh, I don't know, passion or, or feeling for her and, and being able to inhabit her, even though it was only for a few seconds. But there's something magical that happens when you can finally put yourself fully into the character you're creating. And then it was, uh, that feeling was something I wanted to, to recreate again. So. I did. <laughs> wow. And, and did you um, like study how books are written and the use of narrative and whether you get inside the character and sort of experience and write from the first person based on being an observer or, or versus being an observer? Like, how did you think about that part of the writing process? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did uh, read many, many books about how to write and craft and what makes a bestseller. Not that I'm, I mean, I'm hoping this is a bestseller, but I'm not counting yeah. on it. But I, I part of my background um, in business and in market research is I really wanted to know best practices and I wanted to know what worked for people. And, and I took courses and I took online courses and in-person courses. And of course, I read a lot. And I learned about character and plot and, and narrative voice and, and all of those tools. Yeah, I, I, I actually did read a lot of books about that. And I had an editor who helped me at one point. So it's not as if I just sat down and it all flowed smoothly. I had to really mm-hmm. work on it. And I think writing is something that you can work on. And it is, it, it's not just, um, you know, innate talent or I, I think that it's something that you can definitely improve when you can so learn. So it's a craft. It's, it's a, a craft and you can get better at it and you can be like a student of it. For sure. For sure. I think people, people feel that, um, you know, so much of anything creative feels like you're either born with it. It's an innate talent or it's not. And, and while there certainly is, um, creativity and you're putting a lot of yourself into it in a way that you you know, maybe there's some parts of it that can't be taught, but I think that there's a lot that you can learn if you're willing to to work at it. So can you tell us a little bit about, I, I think there's kind of this mis- mystery around like, how do you get a book contract? And you got a book contract with Random House, one of the you know, most elite publishers in the world. Did you have an agent? Like, like, did you know someone? Like, what was that process? How, how do you get a book contract? Do you have to write a proposal? 
you have to have the whole thing written in advance. Like, sorry, but like that kind of detail. Well, fiction for fiction works, you do have to have the whole thing written. Nonfiction, you can sell it based on a proposal. Um, mm. It's uh, a proposal would be laying out all the things you would do in any business. You want to, you know, they want to know who's the target market and why you have the expertise to talk about this topic, and and maybe a sample uh, writing, you know, a writing sample of yours. So that's something that um, is it can definitely be sold. Let's say on spec. Another thing is today that publishers look at is. Uh, what's your online media presence? If you have a lot of followers, um, mm. that's something that really that, that goes into the mix. I think that fiction is very different, and mm -hmm. it's and it is tougher. Um, you have to have an agent if you're going for one of the traditional, say, big five publishers. If you're going to self-publish it, it's different, and and that's a great option for a lot of people because there's so many opportunities now to get your book into the hands of readers by yourself. So you're not really dependent on the big the big publishers anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But for the traditional publishers, you do need an agent. And I did a lot of research about um, how to find agents um, and it does help to have a personal connection, but you can get a personal connection in a lot of ways uh, by going to conferences and there's uh, pitch fairs. There's a lot of opportunities to, to meet agents. They, they want to be exposed to new authors. They're looking for things. So you have to find a way to get to them. So I had a friend who had a book published and he introduced me to his agent and mm -hmm. you know, it went from there. And it was very, yeah. very fast for me, but I, but it was very long to write the book. So I guess it yeah. evened out. But <laughs> right. I, I think a lot depends also, not just on how compelling the story is and how well written, but what the publisher is looking for at that time. Mm -hmm. Originally, I wrote the book as adult fiction. My agent thought that it was a YA story, and it turns out... Wait, what's YA, Lori? YA is young adult fiction, often abbreviated as YA, marketed to adolescents and young adults, roughly ages 13 to 18. Interestingly, though, statistics show that more than half of all YA books are bought by adults. Uh, um. Usually in YA books, the protagonists are teenagers or young adults, and adults love those books anyway, because everybody remembers that time. Uh, sometimes they're coming of age stories, but not always. Uh, usually the genre is um, say not explicit in terms of you know sex and, and violent scenes. And that's something that also appeals to, uh, to some adults. Um, what's interesting about YA is that it's a very robust market segment and books have a longer shelf life than say adult fiction, um, especially if they get into the schools mm -hmm. uh, and into libraries. So it's, it's an attractive market segment. If your story has a teenage protagonist or, you know, a young adult, wow. it's something to think about. I mean, for example, I mean, when we were, when I was growing up, it was Catcher in the Rye or The Outsiders. Now people are familiar with like The Hunger Games, uh, even the, right. book, the book Thief was an international bestseller. I remember that. Out, that came out as a YA book, John Green's books, The Fault in Our Stars. Um, I think people today realize that it's, um, it's a viable outlet for a lot of fiction. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what what happens now? I know um, the book's supposed to come out in February 2021. We're in the pre-order stage. Do pre-orders impact the sale of the book? And and what does that mean to be in pre-order? Yes, it does. I, the, the advantage of pre-order is that if you can have a lot of sales in your first week, you'll make some of the bestseller lists. So to be considered a best-selling author, you know, if you're on the New York Times or USA Today or one of the other lists, you have to have a certain number of sales in one week. So that's why um, the publishers put a lot into the pre I get it. So if the pre-orders are kind of waiting, then they all happen the day the book goes on sale. Right, right. The first week. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. I never put that together before. Now the light has come on for mm-hmm. me. Okay. I understand now mm-hmm. what, what, how those are linked. Um, well, Lori, uh, we, we are so excited for you. And you. I, I want to wrap up by asking you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests. And that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? I think that you need to be kind to yourself when life doesn't go according to plan. And you need to be open to having a career that doesn't tell a coherent linear story. Be open to different opportunities, even if you don't think they're leading to the place you imagined you were going to get to, because you will learn from all of your your opportunities. And you have to be open to all the um, the coincidences and the the things that fall into your lap. Mm-hmm. And I guess my next piece of advice is if you do feel like you would like to write something, don't wait until you're 50 to start <laughs> uh, and don't give up, you know, keep going. Right. And if you keep going, you eventually will get there. Yeah. And, you know, I really loved also what you said about, Feeling comfortable with the disjointed career that, you know, it doesn't follow a progression or tell this neat story that's all kind of tied up in a bow, but there's something significant about each experience that's meaningful for you as the individual and to own that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. So Lori, can you tell our audience how they can find out more information about Rebel Daughter and how they can pre-order? Thank you. Well, it would be wonderful. Uh, I have a website that's lauriekaufman.com. Um, can you spell that, please? Sure. It's L-O-R-I-K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N, two N's, lauriekaufman.com, has order form and more information about the book and an excerpt. And you can always look on Amazon under Rebel Daughter. Uh, also has has all the information. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with that, Lori. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol. It's been a pleasure. Very fun conversation. Thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. 
And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.